0: Well, if you turn in your copy of Scripture to the book of Second Samuel, we're going to be in chapters 23 and 24 this morning, and we're closing out our series on the life of David. And so uh, next week, we'll begin a new series. This is actually our last uh, sermon in this series, and it actually works as a great start to the next one, too, and I think you'll see why. And so Second uh, Samuel 23 and 24, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, I invite you, please, there's some texts in the back, I'll go grab one, and we're going to be in the Word here together this morning. You know, I began ministry when I was 20 years old by leading a worship ministry in the church that Christy and I attended. And as I came on staff, I remember sitting in my office wondering now what am I going to do? <laughs> I had heard that people could get paid uh, to do worship ministry. Like, Nate, did you know that Nate is paid to do what he does? All right. I had heard that that was possible 20 years ago, but I had no idea why somebody would pay somebody to do that. And here I was on staff and I figured, you know, if I'm getting paid to do this, I better figure out how. And, and I was hungry for resources. And one of the resources that I found early on was a book. And I read this book and, and, and this book shaped my life uh, for, for many years to come. In fact, it's still does in many ways. And as as I devoured the book, I I saw the current ministry challenges that I was facing unfolding in the pages through this author. And and I I found great encouragement. I found hope for working through some of my struggles. And and as I read through tears, I I found this great source of wisdom from a godly author who who had helped me uh, through a lot of tough patches early on in my ministry. And I found out that this author was a part of a large church that actually hosted arts conferences for people to come and to learn, not only from him, but but also from their entire staff. And so at my first opportunity, I booked my hotel, I paid my registration, and off I went to this arts conference. And I remember sitting there, the auditorium was about 4,500 seats, it was big, bigger than anything I'd been in before. And I heard the band begin to play, and as they began to play, I remember sitting there thinking, wow. This song is speaking directly to me and to my experience. And, and, and the tears started to flow, and, and I sensed, sensed the Lord saying to me, Andy, you know this, this ministry thing that I've called you to? I'm going to be there with you. You, you can trust me. I, I'm not going uh, to invite you to do something that I'm not going to resource you uh, for. And you're not alone. And that experience in that 4,500-seat auditorium at this arts conference was, was really formative. It was powerful for me as a young and, I'll admit, struggling leader. And when I returned from the conference, I had this kind of new vision for what I expected ministry to be and what I hoped it could be. And and for the next 15 years, I started bringing people to the conference. I read their books. I watched their videos. They actually had videos 20 years ago, uh, you young people, right? And and, and, and I I started listening to what they were doing. And in so many ways, this church had a tremendous influence on my life for the good. I'm, I'm really grateful for what I learned from there. Now, why belabor that? Well... In 2018, a local news organization published an article that that outlined several years of abuse perpetrated by the senior pastor of that church. And and I'm not going to go into details this morning, but it, it turns out that the things that their pastor was accused of were true, and the church has suffered tremendously because of it. And I had to wrestle with that. I mean, I felt like I knew these people. I came of age, in essence, in ministry under some of their tutelage. I looked up to them. I defended them. I even modeled my ministry after them. There was glory there. What I sensed from the Lord, I'm convinced, was from the Lord. The Lord spoke to me as a young man in that ministry. And I have to tell you, when it it all came crashing down, I was really disappointed Because now, in the words of one author, the the glory was replaced with a pile of garbage. At least that's how it felt. And it caused me to ask, was the glory real? Was it real? Was it God's glory, or or was it an illusion? Was it for nothing? I mean, can glory and garbage like that coexist? And church, here's, here's the thing. In Christ, we can refuse the refuse, if you will. We can resist sin. Uh, God gives us the ability to do that by his spirit, and yet this side of heaven we so often don't. We we cling to it, and it clings to us. And so though a 20-year-old kid, in essence, can can still glimpse glory amongst garbage, the garbage nonetheless remains. These things coexist. Now, for those of us who've been around this summer, we've seen this in David's life, haven't we? We've seen it all over the place. And it's fascinating. The writer of 2 Samuel ends his book not with that glorious song in that speech that David gave last week, but instead he ends his book with a narrative that reminds us that though humanity will always struggle with garbage this side of eternity, amen? Though humanity will always struggle with garbage this side of eternity, there is coming a greater glory, an eternal glory, that in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, far outweighs everything else. And so to illustrate this, we're going to look once more, once more, to the life of King David, this man after God's own heart. And in these final chapters, we're going to see glory, and then we'll see garbage, but then we'll see a greater glory. And that'll form the outline of our time together this morning. And so let's begin. Uh, Would you begin with me, starting in chapter 23, verse 8. It says this, These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Joshua Bashabeth, a Tekemonite, was the chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men, whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. I had to practice those a lot this week, and I feel pretty good about that. (laughs) As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pasdamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory." So here we have these three men that are fighting alongside alongside David. They're defending David's honor, and they're loyal to him. They're they're loyal to the covenant that God had, had extended to David. And they stood with him in times of wilderness. Uh, there's, there's links back all the way to, to David's fleeing from Saul in times of victory and even in times of, of defeat. And, and there were more than just these three. The text goes on to list over 30 men who were with David in an integral role in the preservation of David's kingdom. And church, there's glory there. These men were loyal to the covenant king. They were loyal to David. They were loyal to God. I mean, look at the kind of community that, that exists with David here uh, in verse 13 and following. Listen to this. It says, "'During harvest time, three of the chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrisons were at Bethlehem.'" And, and remember, Bethlehem is David's hometown, Okay? And so the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, and David longed for water, and he said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines and drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and they carried it back to David. Church, David and his, and his guys, his men, they're out there fighting the Philistines, and, and David's thirsty. <laughs> and I kind of think of it as like somebody from Wisconsin who might be traveling and might say kind of off the cuff, oh, what I wouldn't give for some cheese curds right now, right? Okay? Here, David, he's not necessarily commanding anybody to go get the water. He's just expressing a desire. Boy, I could use some cheese curds. And then check this out. His men, they look at each other and they say, we can do that. We can get you cheese curds. We can go to get water from Bethlehem. And and they hike over 25 miles. And they infiltrate enemy lines. I mean, it's really dangerous. And they fetch a swig of water so that David can drink water from his hometown. Isn't that awesome? I think that's glorious. And we'll get to David's response in a bit. But church, the sacrificial loyalty of these men models the glory of God's kingdom design for community. And specifically, within that community, for covenant loyalty. (laughs) These men are all about the the kingship of David. And and this has its roots in God's very nature. God is Trinity. God exists, three persons, one substance, one God. And so in Trinity, the three parts, the three persons, always act for the benefit of the other. And here we have these men acting in community in ways that benefit the other, even at great sacrifice to themselves. And church, when we exist that way in community, and when we exist for the best interests of others, and when we remain loyal to the covenant king, we reflect the glory of God. (laughs) I love that picture uh, here in the text. But notice, the glory doesn't simply rest with the community. It doesn't stay there only. See, the author is clear. The glory resides in the power of God. The glory resides in the power of God and God's power. Yeah, these men are great. They really are. But verse 10, it says this, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And then again in verse 12, it says, the Lord brought a great victory. (laughs) Church, it was the Lord that that brought about the victories through these men. And and David would would write this amazing mantra in Psalm 20, verse 7. He he wrote, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. (laughs) How about that for a bumper sticker, huh? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. See, it's God's power that supplies the means by which these guys remain loyal to David and defend the dynasty. Remember, God promised David that his throne would be established forever. That's that's the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. And church, we, we say this all the time around here, what God requires, God provides. It's all about God's power, God's glory. <laughs> and that is glorious. And really, it, David gets it. He he gets it, he understands it. When the guys return with the water in verse 16, they're parched, they've done an amazing feat. You can imagine how exhausted they were, but you can also imagine how excited they were given their loyalty to David to see him take a drink from this water. I mean, they would have been pumped. And what does David do? Well, look look at this, the end of verse 16 here. It says, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. David dumps the water right out there in front of him, and we say, what? I mean, can you imagine what those guys would have felt like? I think I would have blown a gasket. (laughs) Why does David do that? But, But listen to his explanation, and this is beautiful. He says, far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives, and David would not drink it? See, David understood the sacrifice of these men. For David, the water was as their blood. And David wasn't going to drink their blood. That was forbidden. Instead, he he was going to pour that out as a drink offering, an act of worship to the Lord. And he was going to give thanks. He was going to recognize the glory of the community that God had provided for him and to be with him. David was going to honor the Lord. And so here in one of his best moments... He acknowledges this this important principle that that God is glorified through faithful people. God is glorified through faithful people and he he simply responds to that reality in a moment of spontaneous worship. I love it, I love it. These were David's mighty men and assuredly they, they represented God's glory. Now, lest we get too carried away, the glory wasn't without garbage. See, in verse 39... After this long list of mighty men, there's one man left. And listen to who it is. It says, Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah the Hittite. After all these guys, the last person the author mentions is Uriah the Hittite. There were 37 in all. Remember Uriah? Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah was a mighty warrior of David, but Uriah was a victim of murder. He was a victim of David. He died by David's own hand. Glory and garbage, they they coexist, this side of heaven. And the reference to Uriah sets up what's about to occur in the next chapter. See, there's more garbage to come. And so in chapter 24, verse 1, we read this. We read, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, we ask, why is God angry with Israel at this point? Why, why is he angry? And, and the text actually doesn't say, but I think it's fair to say that God was likely angry with the people for siding with Absalom at his rebellion against David. Okay. Regardless, the, the text says that God incited David against Israel to take a census. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we, we read a parallel account of this uh, narrative where it says that it's actually Satan that incites David against Israel. And you say, why why the difference? What's going on there? Is Scripture contradicting itself? Well, uh, no. (laughs) We don't have time to go into all of it, but here's what we need to know. God doesn't cause sin. Say that with me. God doesn't cause sin. Amen. Good. We're clear on that. And I'm convinced that that David in, 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 in what was about to occur could have submitted to the Lord and not done what Satan was tempting him to do, was inciting him to do. And yet, the Lord sometimes uses Satan's tempting for his purpose. And it's part of what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. God works all things for good, even things like sin. Now, God doesn't condone sin. Of course He doesn't. And He doesn't cause sin. We've already established that. He's just bigger than it. He's not not beholden to it. He's not limited by our sin. He, in fact, can use our sin, and He often does, for His purposes. And so, in in chapter uh, 24 verses 2-10, through we see that God incites David through the temptation of Satan to take a census of Israel. Now, according to the law in in Exodus chapter 30, it's not forbidden to take a census, okay? God didn't forbid the people of Israel to take censuses. Sensai, what's the plural, I don't know, I don't know, all right? And yet, God had a specific purpose for them. And so when a census was taken, each person was, that was to be counted was also to offer to God a half a shekel for sort of a tax, if you will, that would go to the temple treasury. And the tax, this half shekel, had a specific purpose. It, it was to be what God called a ransom for their lives. It was to remind the people that their only source of hope was in God and in His atoning work. And and so Exodus 30, verse 16 says, when you take the census, you need to receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It'll be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. This was God's design for the census, to remind the people of God's ransoming of their lives. What does David do? Well, as we observe Joab's reaction to what David uh, initiates, it becomes clear David's purpose is not to remind the people of their need for God. In fact, quite the contrary. Look at verse 3. Chapter 24, But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? See, Joab understood The king's eyes were drawn to what he could see. They were drawn to his kingdom, to his power, to his notoriety. And his desire started to become affected. He desired, he wanted to bask in his own glory. And so Joab uh, warns him. He says, hey, David, if you do this in the spirit that I'm seeing welling up in you, you're going to be sorry, man. You're going to be sorry. Don't do it. Don't do it. In church, it's easy to get drawn into garbage, isn't it? It's easy to get drawn into garbage. It's easy for leaders of megachurches. It's easy for you. It's easy for me. Our pride, if we're not careful, can get the best of us, just like that. And if we're not careful, we we can begin listening to the lie of Satan that says, you will not surely die. (laughs) You'll be like God. We lust after power and control and, and recognition. And when we experience blessing, we're tempted to take pride in that which we can see and somehow assign ourselves to its effect. It's dangerous. And it leads to carelessness for David. David. Not just pride, but but carelessness. David, in his hubris, in his rush to count the kingdom, totally neglects God's law. There was no half-shekel ransom mentioned at all in this text. David is careless, and it reminds us of Uzzah. Remember Uzzah from 2 Samuel 6? When, when, When the people were bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, they put it on a donkey cart, an an oxen cart, an ox cart, that's what it was. And, and 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 the ox cart's going along and it stumbles and the ark starts to tip, and Uzzah reaches out and he touches the ark. And you remember what happened to Uzzah? He died immediately. He was careless. He didn't follow the Lord's law, what the Lord had said. And it strikes me, some some lessons are important enough that they need to be relearned, relearned, aren't they? We're not to trifle with the holiness of God. And friends, the garbage of pride and carelessness don't remain unnoticed by the eyes of a holy God. He notices. And after Joab scours the land and he counts 1.3 million troops, it's a big deal. And David has this this moment, this sort of come-to-Jesus moment, if you will. (laughs) Look in verse 10. It says, David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. <laughs> Where have we heard that before? Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. Expiate my guilt, Lord. I have done a very foolish thing. See, David admits his sin. And though the census would have taken months, which is a long time to have a cold heart, ultimately, true to form, David repents. Praise God, he repents. And see, it's not his moral perfection that makes him a man after God's own heart, right? We've established that throughout this series. It's not David always making the right choices. Here's what makes him a man after God's own heart. It's his covenant commitment. It's that he comes back to the Lord. He confesses his sin and says, Lord, I need you. Would you bring me back? Now, we might hope at this point that God would simply have forgiven and forgotten, right? Let's move on. But remember, God, God hates sin. And that's good. We want God to hate sin, right? Because if God didn't hate it when women and children were abused, if God didn't hate it when people were murdered, if God didn't hate it when different heinous things happened in the world, He wouldn't be very good, Would He? but he does, he hates sin, he's holy. Therefore, God has wrath against sin and that wrath must be satiated, must be satisfied. And see, though though God does forgive, there are still consequences for sin. And as God allows those consequences, He makes us aware of our brokenness, of our mess, of our need for His remedy, of our need for grace. And see, without consequences, we wouldn't appreciate our need for the forgiveness of sin. And we wouldn't really hate it either. We'd accept it. Friends, this is the dangerous nature of the current cultural moment that we're living in. I'm convinced that as a culture, we're getting better and better at calling evil good. And we say it with various hashtags or other clever means that God's creation designed for sex within a marriage between one man and one woman is somehow old-fashioned and oppressive. We claim that unborn babies are just fetuses. That you do you and I'll do me. And as long as we don't hurt each other, we can do whatever we want. And see, we're letting go of the social consequences for sin. We're calling evil good. And church, hear me on this. We must, we we must always treat our neighbor with the dignity that the image of God in them, regardless of their sin, demands. Amen? I want to say that again. We must always treat those created in the image of God with the dignity that that image demands regardless of their sin. And so we dare not belittle them on Facebook. We dare not scoff at them. We dare not not make fun of them. That has no place in the kingdom of God. But church, we we must also be careful not to ignore sin's consequences if we could anyway. We must not call what's evil good. God God says to David in verses 11 through 15, what you've done is evil, therefore you have three choices. You have three choices. You can have three years of famine, you can have three months of war, or you can have three days of pestilence, of plague. What are you going to choose? And see, God demonstrates his wrath against sin. Sin has consequences. But even in that, God is merciful. He's merciful because God grants David choices. He didn't have to do that. There's mercy here. And God clearly links the the, the sin of Israel to David's actions, and he grants David the choice, and in brokenness. Listen to what David says in verse 14. He's answering Gad, who's speaking for God. He says, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. And see, church, David knows his God, and so he entrusts his fate and the fate of the people to God's mercy. Friends, proud people try to dodge consequences, but broken people accept them and put themselves in the hands of God. Proud people dodge consequences, but broken people accept them and put themselves in God's hands. And the principle here is this. Mistaking God's blessings for our self-sufficiency elicits God's breaking When when we consider the blessings that we have a product of our own ingenuity, of our own supply, of our own power, get ready. God's not going to leave us there. He's going to allow us to be broken, and, and that grip on ourselves will become released, even to the point of extending His wrath. And so as David owns his responsibility, and he does... He's right where God wants him. He's broken. And yet the consequences remain. See, God sends an angel and he follows through. He brings an angel of pestilence, three days. And 70,000 men of Israel lose their lives. 70,000. It's a devastating reality. God says to David, in essence, David, you you felt the need to count the men? Well, how about 5%? How about 70,000? Gone. I think sometimes consequences are meant to take our breath away because they're meant to point us to the reality of God's holiness, of God's glory. It's not to be trifled with. And praise God, we have these examples in the Old Testament where God makes this clear. But then listen, listen to this. Praise God for this. Verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster. And he said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. God says it's It's enough. It's enough. And and church, the greater glory here, the glory that transcends the garbage is that God is not only a God of wrath against sin, but church, He's also a God of infinite, glorious, beautiful mercy. His wrath has limits, praise God. And so in verse 17, we read, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. And church, David accepts responsibility for his sin. He agrees with God about it and his actions demonstrate his repentance. He says, Lord, let me incur your wrath, not these people. Let me be their substitute. And at the word of the prophet, he prepares to build an altar to make a sacrifice to the living God. Church, that's genuine repentance. Not only agreeing with God about sin, not only accepting that what God says is sin is in fact as such, but also turning away from our sin and towards God. That's what David does here. And as he stands there on the threshing floor of Arunah, he prepares to make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. And you know where he's standing? He's standing, yes, at the the altar on the threshing floor of Arunah, but he's standing on the top of Mount Moriah. You know what happened on Mount Moriah? This is the place where Abraham brought his son Isaac And you remember what God said to Abraham, this is what you must do. I want you to sacrifice your son, the covenant son. I want you to bring him up there and I want you to strike him so that he dies. And Abraham in faith was obedient to God. He went up on the top of Mount Moriah with Isaac and he laid him on the altar. And you know what the Lord did? He provided a substitute. He provided a substitute. There was a ram. This is Mount Moriah. You know what else is significant about Mount Moriah? This is the place where God would have Solomon build the temple. <laughs> and this is the place where, where year after year, even day after day, sacrifice for the sins of the people would be made. This is the place where God would commune with his people. You know what else is significant about Moriah? It reminds us of another mount, a mount called Calvary. <laughs> This is where Jesus would ascend a cross, where he would die a sacrificial death to make a once and final sacrifice for the sins of all people. Right here, Arunas Threshing Floor. Church, I want you to notice the parallels between what David does here in 2 Samuel 24 and what Jesus ultimately does to make atonement for our sins. See, David points us to a greater glory. David points us to Jesus. And first, listen to this. David offers himself, the end of 17, he says, What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David says, Lord, take me instead. Make me the substitute. I have sinned. It's my fault. Let me die in their place. And friends, Jesus, though he was different than David, Jesus knew no sin. Jesus also offered himself as a substitute sacrifice for us. And in Hebrews 12 he says, it says he did it for the joy that was set before him. David says, I'm the shepherd, uh, they're the sheep, take me. And Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, they're the sheep, take me. I'm the good shepherd, I'm the perfect shepherd, I can do this like nobody else, take me. And then notice that, that David builds an altar. He builds an altar and in building an altar he makes a costly sacrifice. See, the owner of the threshing floor, Arunah, he's, he's seen the devastation. He knows who the king is, and he wants to do his part. He wants to be loyal to the king. And so he says to David, here, you can have it. I'm not going to charge you anything. Please just do what you need to do so that God's wrath can be thwarted uh, and, and this can all be over. And I, this is one of my favorite things in all of David's narrative that he says here in, in chapter 24, in verse 24 these are the last words of David now I said the last speech of David was last week these are the last words this isn't a speech he's just talking to God and to people here he says this in verse 24 he says but the king replied to Arunah no I insist on paying you for it I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing <laughs> I love that I'm not going to give to the Lord something that's just been given to me freely no way Church, Jesus paid a great price to offer a suitable sacrifice to God in order to atone for our sins. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Church, David built an altar. Jesus ascends a cross. And then in verse 25 We read, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayers in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. And see, the text indicates that that once David offers the sacrifice, the Lord's wrath against Israel, against David is satisfied. God relents. And church, when, when Jesus ascended that cross, when he died as our substitute sacrifices, among other things, he satisfied God's wrath against sin. He satisfied God's wrath against sin. First John 4-10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That, that's what propitiation is. It's the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. Church, God hates sin. But He loves us. He loves you. And he was not willing to pour out his wrath on you without giving you an opportunity for that wrath to be satisfied in another way. And so he poured it out on his Son, our Savior Jesus. That's propitiation. And friends, that's grace. Finally, the last part of verse 25 says simply that the plague on Israel was stopped. The plague was stopped. In church, when, when Jesus offered Himself on that cross, He not only satisfied God's wrath, but He also reversed the curse of sin. He, he reversed the curse. <laughs> and with His sacrificial death and resurrection, the glory mixed with the garbage gives way to a greater glory. Church, a finished glory in the new heavens and the new earth. A glory where garbage no longer will be. Praise God. Now, I expect throughout our time together in this study that that you, like me, have, have found yourself in this David narrative in a variety of ways. Some glory, some garbage, but always a need for grace. And church, David, as a man after God's own heart, does not demonstrate perfection, but he does demonstrate what it looks like to pursue God to fail and then to rest in God's covenant grace. And the principle here in the latter part of chapter 24 is is this, church our, our hope's not in ourselves. It doesn't come from within, it's not a humanist hope, it's not an earthly solution, it's not a hope in any specific pastor or any specific local church or any specific community leader or government or public figure, no, God's salvation is our only hope for the greater glory. And that hope is rooted in a man who comes in the line of David, who is the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate king, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so in a world full of garbage, you have garbage. I have garbage. Others around us have garbage. In this world full of garbage, would you trust the king? Would you trust Jesus? Would you repent of your, your sin of pride and carelessness? Some of you have been in the church a long time, and it's easy for that, that, that well of pride to sort of rise up in you. I, I got this. I know this. I don't have to worry about this. Others of you, and maybe never really understood, never taken the time to go, what is this faith thing all about? What does the Bible really have to say? You've been careless, if you're honest. It's time to own our sin, own our junk, and invite God's remedy. It's time to be broken. Would you let Jesus' death and resurrection glory wash over you? Would you trust Him as your Savior today? Would you let Him reverse the curse? Friends, we we can go after a lot of things in this life. And perhaps there's a lot of good things, but if we're not running after Jesus, we run in vain. I want, you to, I want to invite you to keep tracking with us this semester. We're going to start a new series next week. It's going to be called The Story We Tell. And, and it's going to have two functions. One, if you're not clear on the gospel, if you're not clear on the story of God as it relates to you personally, my prayer is that at the end of this series, you'll know exactly what Scripture teaches about what it means to be saved. Okay? Incidentally, if you've got some friends that you think might be able to uh, benefit from that message, bring them. But then the second function is that we sit here as a people of God, equipped with a mission of God to represent Jesus to a dying world. And so my prayer is that we're going to be crystal clear, not only on, on what the gospel means for ourselves, but, but that what the gospel means for, for others. And we're going to be able to articulate that. That's my hope. That's my prayer. That's what I'm asking God for. I, I pray you'll invite God to do that with me, all right, here over these next several weeks. Friends, I, I, I love the journey with you. I love walking with you through passages like First and Second Samuel. And may God continue the work that he started in us for his glory. Let, let's pray together, amen? Okay. Father, I love what you said to Samuel when Samuel was getting ready to anoint David as the next king of Israel. Before David, there were his brothers. And Samuel was sure that the firstborn, this handsome, uh, high status, uh, everybody knew this, this kid was destined for greatness. Guy would be the one that was anointed. But, but you said, no. And you said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance, don't consider his height. We've done that, we've tried that. I've rejected him, I've rejected that. And look Samuel, the the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And God, I'm so, I'm so grateful for that. And at the same time, I'm so humbled by that. Lord, I want a heart of David. I don't want to sin in all the ways that David did. And yet when I do sin, and I do, I want to have a heart that's broken, a heart that's soft, a heart that's quick to repent, to say, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned, create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, renew a right spirit in me. Blessed are the broken in spirit and, contrite heart, uh, and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise I pray that for me I pray that you would break me every time I need it and that you do that for these dear brothers and sisters both the ones here in this room and the ones listening online God that you would do a breaking work in us that you might receive the glory and that your covenant kingdom might prevail Lord we confess yes there's, there's garbage and yes there's glory this side of heaven But we long for that day as we've already sung about this morning when Jesus will return as the covenant king in bodily form and all that's now wrong will be made right. God, thank you for your presence with us and we trust you with these things. Give us a heart like David. In Jesus' name, amen.